Three lecture forty. With the beginning of the second temple period, there are um, in the previous generations since Moshe Rabbeinu, we learned in Maseches Para that all previous generations used the ashes from the original red heifer, Paraduma, from Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, and they still had some left, even that lasted throughout Golis Bovel. As we say, they don't make them like they used to. A little went a very long That's way. They um, needed the ashes for... Correct. Okay. They needed the ashes. They needed the ashes of the Paraduma, and a little went a very long way. That's how it's possible. A very little bit... No, not not. The, I, I could say it was miraculous. That's argue. That's there is such a shot, but it doesn't take much, especially since you're combining it with other ingredients, the 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 errors and the right. That's a good question. I don't know enough to answer that. It's a good question. I, it would make sense if you would say yes, then you could really stretch it out. But in any case, in any case, we know the record, and this is all brought down in the Mishnayos that they had one paraduma. All the way down, and again from Gullus Bubble, they have a little bit more. And now they've just rebuilt the second temple, and in the ruins of the of the walls, because you remember they, the Babylonians never fully destroyed the structure of the temple. There's still some standing in situ kinds of uh, walls left, and in some of the ruins, they discover some more of the ashes of the par- of that original paraduma. But it's clearly coming to an end, and so uh, Ezra knowing that the paraduma is shechted right over there, I love giving this class and being able to say such a thing, right, on, on Harazesim, which last week, two days ago, I was able to point to Harazesim so you have a good visualization, this well, whole mountain range. Yeah, I point there because you pointed out that Harazotim is really part of Harazesim. Really, Harazotim is part of Harazesim, correct. Harazotim uh, is a modern name that's it's really a distortion. There is such a thing as Sophim that's described in the Chazal, but it's something else. The last point where you can see Yerushalayim. Sophim means the place you can see, vis- visualize Yerushalayim. So they, there was a place on Har Azesim where they shechted the Paraduma and did the purification rituals. And with this in mind, Ezra <coughs> has constructed what's called a kevish, a big ramp that led from Harazesim all the way over that deep Kidron Yehoshaphat Valley. I use both terms because it's referred to alternately as either the Kidron or the Yehoshaphat Valley that separates the Mount of Olives from the eastern flank of the old city and then connected by way, and in one of the, and at least one of the models that we looked at, I pointed out there was that Kevish. I even described the Kevish entering the Shari Rachamim, the mercy gates going into the eastern side of the Temple Mount. When you, when, I meant to mention this yesterday, we were picturing the eastern gates. Of course, yesterday we described how they had this image, Persian, the Persian rulers in, uh, required that they put the image of Shushan in that gate as a constant intimidator, a, re- a reminder of that they were subservient to the Persians. Well, Ezra builds this ramp so that a Cohen, after shechting the Paraduma, he, he shechts the first one in nine centuries since Moshe's, after which they have it there, and then the people can become purified and then simply cross what really was a ramp, really a bridge, oh, bridge. over the oh, valley. Um, and, and one of the reasons for the bridge, and it was had a lot of halachic intricacies, um, in order to cross the valley, you wanted to maintain your purity, you'd have to be very <laughs> careful because down in the valley below was still that famous ancient graveyard. Right, basic faros, but you can construct the bridge in such a way with the kever to home, and it's all complicated. Which I'm not going to get into the details. Um, but that's how you can get around the the, the, the problem of tuma. So now they have the the second 
para aduma in history, in this period, in the early Second Temple period, there would be, and apparently as the generations decline, there's a, there's a need for more and more paraduma ashes. I guess, they, I guess they could not make it spread as thin as they used to. So already, not that many years later, in the times of Shimon Tzadik, I'm ahead of ourselves now, but I'm just giving you a, a quick overview, a rundown on the paraduma. Um, in the times of Shimon Tzadik, he'll shecht two more. So that leads us to four paradumas. And at, by the end of the second temple, 420 years later, they will have a total of nine paradumas that were shechted, that were, that were uh, slaughtered. And the Mishnah tells us there will be a total of 10 that will be used in history. The 10th, of course, will be brought by the Mashiach. Um, now, some want to suggest there have been a couple of false, uh, uh, not alarms, but false uh, tries. Uh, I remember not that long ago there was a possible paraduma, but then it turned out it was not good. I think in 2007, I remember there was a whole tumult over, over a possible paraduma. It doesn't like take now? much to puzzle okay. it. That's what I'm saying. There was something, but it came and went, and it was not legitimate. Uh, in 2007, I think it was, there were higher hopes for it, but um, you know one of the requirements is low. Allah, 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 there can't be any burden on its back, so it's very easy to, by putting something on the back of the card, to render it disqualified. Um, it's the, the requirements to be a kosher paraduma actually are not so, so, so uh, immense that you couldn't have it, meaning it's within the realm of possibility, not like impossible, and therefore we, we have no source that says that if we have a paraduma, that means inevitably Mashiach's on his way. That it did. It, no, a lot of people have that misconception. Yeah, There's no source saying that. I thought that's why they kept disqualifying. Oh, I no, no, no. It, it, it just means it means it certainly seems to indicate that there's something up, but we have no source for that. Yeah, it's, 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 as, as if we had it, that means Mashiach is inevitably coming coming around the corner. I don't see why not. If it was a certified paraduma, it would seem to me not only would we be allowed to, it would be required to. Well, so as way as way of being mezakeh klal Yisrael and helping be things. Ten of them. I mean, that would be the tenth one. Presumably, but if it was a kosher one, again, since there's no source prohibiting it, and there's no source saying it, so Mimela Mashiach would come, and that would be it. Be, it doesn't say that it has to be the Mashiach doing the shechting necessarily. It's something that's, it's connected with the Mashiach. Yeah. yeah. Three things. Uh, one. Yeah. Uh, I'll start from the. The first thing. One, uh, the law about the cemetery. That doesn't apply to non-Jewish cemeteries. Um, it's a machlokis about whether non-Jewish cemeteries generate tumah. Um, and the, the, there is a Tosfos, for example, that I looked at, that I worked on last year in Baba Metzia that describes Eliyahu Navi going through a cemetery and asking, since he was, according to at least Wabashat, he was a Kohen, how that was conceivable. And the Tosfos indicates there that uh, it was possible for extraordinary circumstances when there was a great, great need for him to go into a non Jewish cemetery. Non-Jewish cemetery. I did. I told you the story on the eastern flank, exactly the same area. I described the eastern flank of the old city, right outside Harabais, on the eastern side. The Muslims probably under it could have been under the Mamluks, but probably under Suleiman, um, basically created that cemetery, big Arab cemetery that you see, knowing that Eliyahu Navi was a Kohen, and thereby, and knowing that he was supposed to be the harbinger, the 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 precursor to the final coming of the Mashiach, and the Muslims were not interested in the Jewish Messiah coming, thanks very much, and so they built this graveyard as a way of keeping Eliyahu out, and thereby the Mashiach out, and so far uh, forestalling the Geula, and the jokes on them, let me tell you. 
right? The joke's on them because, as we just said, there's a way of Eliyahu Navi, as we said, I just mentioned the Tosos, getting through that non-Jewish cemetery. Second question. Two, uh, is it, well, one of the second two, isn't the Temple Institute, like, that they're trying to do everything. The they would like. They would like to uh, again do all, all steps necessary to bring about the final ruler. So would we. I mean, everybody would so like that, like, but they're practically planning. <laughs> okay. Why wouldn't we be allowed to walk? One second. Three. Um, the there's certain things that like to purify coin, right? You would use a parking but today. But we don't know. It would to answer like the question. That's a question on your answer that we would be able to do it today, but we don't know if he's really Kohan and whatnot. Well, we so could have the Parduma, but whether right exactly, there's no, a big question about who actually are Kohanim. Yeah, exactly, I agree with that. I agree with that. There are some people who have Yichis who are called Kohanim Miuchasim, and we're knowing that way. Let's say when it comes to many of the Chafdala, the twenty-four gifts. I was, for example, you've all. What did you do when you um, you you? Gave your uh, Peter Rechem Chamer, your firstborn donkey, to the Kohen? Well, when I gave my firstborn donkey the, the, uh, to the Kohen, thereby fulfilling a mitzvah, the Ereisa, should all be Zochim to do that, um, we actually found there was a Kohen Miuchas. I mentioned this in the first tour I gave at the very beginning of the year. We passed by the mirror, and I mentioned this a small society called the Hever Mitzvah Nadiros, that they, they facilitate doing this and many other uncommon mitzvahs. Uh, and they, they, for these mitzvahs, many of them have to do with uh, gifts to the Kohanim, and they, they, they find a Kohen Miyuchas. question is, okay, he can trace his lineage, but whether that really counts for halacha, could they really stand and bring uh, korbanos and so on. Um, by the way, there is a position, uh, I refer you to Rabbi Speaker's Kalisher, we're going to get to him later in the year, who says that even Tomei Kohanim can do certain amounts of avoda, can bring certain korbanos. There's a way of going about doing that even without paradume ashes. Wait, but you brought up for your first donkey, you actually brought your first donkey? I did. You, you didn't? Don't, you, don't, you mean Pinot of Ben? No, my no. first donkey. You bought a donkey. No, donkey. You don't have a donkey. What's that? You don't own a donkey. Now I don't. don't but I was mishtate. If I joined in this and, and I was I co-owned it together with all the other Jews who wanted to fill this mitzvah. Thereby, we all fulfilled the mitzvah, and it was facilitated by this organization that does it. But are we like? Are we really supposed to bring it on? Yeah, it's a mitzvah. For sure. Like once mitzvah? in your lifetime, at least, you'd want to try to keep every mitzvah. And what about what did you do? Okay, what, who did you give your racist gaze to? The first shearings from your, the wool shearings from your sheep. Yeah, we don't Actually, have that. You have. I'm a Pinyana Ben. I'm a ben. I'm a firstborn. I gave my thing. Oh, very good. That's more common. That's less. That's less. That's not really a mitzvah nadira. Not so common. Not so. Not so rare of a mitzvah. But uh, yeah, these are all tremendous chiyos. We're alive in times that we can we can do this. There are people for sure. I did. I mean, was a tremendous I mean, list. The keva, the zroel, the lechayayim, the different gifts to give to the kohanim. Fantastic. I mean, if you were able to trace, no, most Jews don't. But what a, what a loss! You'd be, you'd be alive and not fulfill every mitzvah you could possibly get your hands on. It's fantastic. It's really it's really the tragic thing. Um, it's what I said. You know, you should. Americans are used to TV dinner kind of Judaism where everything is served up to you, you know, kind of stale, but there anyway. So you get, you know, a lot of them go to the shul, and so you pay your dues, and the rabbi gives you, uh, you know, the baked matzahs, and you get your package, dalad minim, and like that. Anybody familiar with such a thing? Yeah. Right? But wouldn't it be better if you went out and selected your own esrog and lulav, and baked your own matzah, and made your own tzitzit? Wouldn't you experience a certain greater pride? The chazonish 
Zatzal. The Chazan Ish um, went so far, and, and he was extremely frail physically. He went and made his own batim for tefillin. He didn't want to rely on anybody. He knew the sugya inside and out. Obviously, he knew everything. Uh, and he made his own batim. The people were mispala. People were shocked when they saw this frail uh, man bending over them and, 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 and making the batim personally. But he wouldn't have it any other way. I, I think it's good. Yeah, you don't have to be Gal Hador to do that. That's, a, that's really wonderful. It's a great way. Don't you feel, who's, who's wearing their own tzitzit that they, made, that they made with their own hands? These are six days old. My, these, these particular tzitzit, I just made them last year of Shabbos. And I can't tell you how, you know, this is my mitzvah. I did this one. I had such pride. I invested myself. I, you know, this, this, and a, a tzitzit is a good example, too, because it's one of those mitzvahs that are connected to all the mitzvahs. You should take pride in your mitzvahs. Yes, Daniel, quickly, and then we're going to resume our, our narrative. Um, why, it's like, it's a more of a complicated question. Like, if we're, we're not allowed, uh, allowed to walk through a Jewish graveyard, and the bodies, the, de- the dead bodies are holier than the non-Jewish dead bodies because they once hung so you want to you want to say that a non-Jew should even be kavuchomer should be even more off limits to them? And the answer is, uh, it's a deep answer, and there's a lot more to say. But the holier, the, the potential, the potentially a greater level of kedusha simultaneously has a greater level of tumor. And that goes, and I have a whole piece on this based in the Maharal, that goes, the, the inanimate objects have no level of tumor. Animals have a minimal level. Non-Jews have a higher level of Kedusha and thereby a higher level of potential tumor. And Jews, Klal Yisrael has, has the potentially highest level of tumor and thereby potentially the highest level of tumor. It, go, it goes like that, if you can conceive of that. Um, Ezra now assembles all of Klal Yisrael in Yerushalayim for three days uh, to rebuke them. Because as much as they may not be on the level of the first temple Jews, they're still on the level that they can hear it from their, from their uh, leaders, their prophets. Um, and his issue, as we've mentioned before, one issue that's still out of hand, out of control, is intermarriage. Shockingly, but that's what's happened in, um, in Yehuda, in Eretz Judea, um, and he, 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 he just lets them have it because you can't, if you just let it go, it'll never be solved. And you have to solve it from the inception. We saw that in the period of the Shof team with the harsh, immediate response to the situations, let's say with the Pilegish Megiva, the concubine from Giva, or alternately, you remember the strong potential civil war that almost broke out between the Jews and the two and a half tribes across the way when they built this altar right after they set up Shiloh. And, and the commentaries say, yeah, because once you tolerate a little bit, you give them an inch, they'll take a mile, uh, there's no end to it. And so Ezra's trying to stamp out, he's trying to get rid of the evil in its midst, and it's complicated. See, because some of the women that they'd married had actually indeed converted sincerely, and their conversions were good, and many of them had never converted, and others had illegitimate conversions, and how do you go figure out what to do about that? And so the Sanhedrin Gedola, the high court, uh, assembles and goes case by case with all the intricacies to determine which were legitimate and which were not. In the end, they paskin that 96 Jewish men had to divorce their non-Jewish wives, their Nochri wives, and send them away together with their children because their children are not technically, halachically, their, Jew- their, their children. The children from a non-Jewish woman are not Jewish. They're not, they're not yours. And so that's what they did. 
Baruch Hashem, we're still at the level and we're going to sink very, very far in the second temple period. But at the beginning, at least, they're in a high enough level that you can paskin such a thing and decree such a thing. And the people, maybe reluctantly, but eventually, will listen to you. And they did. Now, there's still, the, the poverty has not gone away. It's intense. And with poverty, we find this frequently in societies. If you're a student of uh, human uh, so sociology, you see poverty often breeds corruption. Underworld crime, black market and such. Uh, one finds this at this point in history in, in Eretz Yehuda, especially in this case among Kohanim, who'd started to abuse their roles. They do enjoy certain privileges, and that didn't go well with certain Kohanim. Uh, they would, for example, bribe people to get extra gifts of these 24 gifts. Uh, that was not okay. Uh, they, when some of them became ba'alimum, blemished and thereby disqualified from the avoda, they hid it and served anyway. Because you, when, you, when you got your turn doing the avoda, well, you know, you got a lot of perks and privileges and they wanted to keep the privileges and so they, they, uh, they obscured their blemishes, their, their, their disqualifications. Um, Again, we find in this case Malachi, and we said Malachi may very well be Ezra too. He rebukes them for this. At one point, Hashem sends a, sends a famine. When bad things happen to Klal Yisrael, we have to clap al khayt. We have to realize that it must be somehow due to what we're doing, even if the uh, Muslims are today planning many of the attacks, but we can't play the vic victim card entirely. We have to realize we're responsible for this too. Uh, they, are, they have to pay a very uh, heavy tax to the Persian authority. They have neighbors all around who oppress them. Uh, we're talking about the Shomronim. We're going to hear about the Shomronim and others. The city walls have never been repaired. And maybe that doesn't mean very much to most of us because most of us don't live in city walls. For how many of you was it the first time that you kissed a mezuzah on a city gate the other day? Because how often does that come up in life? Right? So that, that's once upon a time in the pre-modern world, not that long ago, everybody lived inside of a big, thick, often casemate wall because you were scared. And we did have alarm systems and, uh, and, and so on. And um, here they're back now living very vulnerably uh, without walls. They just couldn't afford to repair them and they didn't have the energy. And so their, their lives in the city of Yerushalayim is, are basically in dread day and night for about 14 years. And then we meet our next hero. Now you mentioned this was like a very short period of like... This is still the short Persian period. We're still in that 60 year window of time that we call the Persian period. And it's not, a, not the highest point for Klal Yisrael, certainly. They're, they're living in terror for 14 years. And then we find our next hero. Anybody know who I'm going to introduce right now? Something we haven't talked about yet, but if you know a little bit... Antigonus. What's that? Antigonus. Oh, no, 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 no. You're ahead of us now. No, he's got a, a safer named after him in the in the Etanach. That helps. You said that we talked about. It, I, know. I know we we mentioned it. We mentioned his name. But I haven't focused on it. I haven't focused on it. So I, I was I was I realized I was misleading. <laughs> he's not he's not he's not known as a classically a navi. Uh, he's Nehemia. Nehemia ben um, Chachalia. Um, he's characterized. He's described to us as a very pleasant, happy personality. And he's back in Bavel, back in Bavel, which is really Persia now. Same place, different name. The same ruler there is Daryavish, and Daryavish at this point loves Nehemi. He's a lovable kind of a personality, and um, he was what's called the Sarhamashkim. Remember the Sarhamashkim in the story with Yosef, the uh, minister of the the you know, kind of like the wine taster. 
Now, you might think, ooh, now there's a job I can get into. Wine taster, that was, in fact, in the ancient world, not exactly, uh, how do we say, the safest profession since poisoning the king. Poisoning the king was often the assassination of choice, and one way around it, of course, was you gave it to the Sar Hamashkin first to drink. So there was not, uh, how do I say it like this, the actuaries uh, had a good time with, this, with the various uh, ministers of drink. Uh, because they uh, usually didn't, it, it didn't leave a very long life. So why would it be the assassination of choice if the person, the king, has the... Uh, what? So he was, he was, that was his job. He was the Sarah Mashkin. No, what he's asking is why was it the, the assassination of choice if everyone had a No, because you could often get around that and manipulate it. You have to play the law, law of averages, I guess. They, st they still often would do it. And they get away with it. And maybe sometimes they developed a poison that was long-lasting, so it didn't appear that Tsar Mashkin would die, so everything seemed okay, so then everybody would taste it, and then later on everybody would die. Ah. Or maybe For example. You know, I should know better than bring up topics like this when I'm in the room. I should tell you, you know. <laughs> but I do have to say, if, if ever, you were to sleep just now, but if you ever start to nod off in this class, I know exactly what topic to bring up to bring you back to life. The uh, messengers arrived from Judea informing everybody of the poor state of Klal Yisrael back in Eretz Yisrael. They describe the, the terrible conditions, the crumbling city walls. Nehemiah hears, and he's disconsolate. He's, he's terribly upset, and he does what a Jew does, he davens. Four months into this, the king starts to notice Nehemiah's bad temperament, and initially he starts to think, oh, maybe Nehemiah is plotting to poison me. He starts suspecting his beloved Nehemiah, and he confronts Nehemiah, and Nehemiah says, no, no, chas shalom, I'm innocent, it's not true. And he explains the reason for his sadness, the situation of Klal Yisrael. And he's such a ishtam kind of a personality, such a genuine person that the king certainly believed him. And um, not only did he believe him, he said, Nehemiah, you're going to go back, and you're going to build them some city walls. The king sends back all the building materials that Nehemiah requests. And more than that, he appoints Nehemiah as the new governor. Now, it's not entirely clear whatever happened to Zerubbabel, who was technically the Pecha beforehand, but now Nehemiah becomes the, uh, the new governor. I know, but here it's a, it's a good kosher version because it's Jewish people in power over other Jewish people. That we can deal with. It's the, the, the usual problem, as I've alluded, what I've alluded to in the past, the usual problem is when we're, when we're in power and, and it's a non-Jewish brand of power and we have to establish our loyalty to the non-Jewish power over our loyalty to the Jews, often we find that Jews doing misbehaving under those circumstances. But here it's, 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 it's all fine, it's all parat. Of Palestine and the British Mandate there is. I, I mentioned that as an, as, a, as an example, correct. But that's not the only one. We'll, we'll see many such examples. And some of the examples are good. I mean, we'll, we'll meet, for example, um, uh, Shmuel Anagi, who was a big tzaddik, and he certainly amassed a lot of power about a thousand years ago. But uh, they're good and they're bad examples of such things. Um, Kissinger. Not long ago, just a few years ago, Henry Kissinger was Secretary of State under Nixon. In the Nixon um, uh, government. He just got a new book. Yeah, don't buy it. The uh, the uh, Kissinger um, uh, from actually Washington Heights originally. His parents are are Yekis, the, the the German Jews. So it was he was caught on tape, and this only was published recently. Caught on tape when um, 
there was a concern that the Russians may actually um, uh, commit genocide and, and kill off the Jews in the former Soviet Union. There's discussion about it. it was Kissinger, the Jew, uh, on uh, the Jew, the, the, the court Jew, who told uh, Nixon and the other, the other, the other um, members of the cabinet. Um, he said, "What business is it about ours in America whether a few Jews die over in the Soviet Union?" No friend of the Jews. Wait, why? Uh, well, well, to that story, you encounter the story of how he helped in the uh, October War, in the War of uh, the Yom Kippur War. He didn't. Uh, he did. He was forced into. I, yeah, he was forced into, and I would debate that heavily after the war. Do you know the pressure that he exerted on Golda Meir, the Prime Minister at the time, uh, to give up the Golan Heights? It was immense, and it was totally, he was indifferent to the strategic and the, the tactical kinds of risks that that would run if the Jews gave the Golan Heights back to Syria. Uh, he, he really, it was, not, it was not out of any love for Jews that he did any, anything well, that he did. He was, uh, he was, well, I think his main philosophy was like, he's a realist versus an idealist. Fine. I'm talking, I'm biased here. I love Klal Yisrael. Right. He, he doesn't. Boston. Nor ever, nor did he and ever, and you don't find that in any. He may have, he may have been a, an advocate of real politics, kolakavod, you know. And if you care about that, you know, a person, you know, for that, for a person for whom that's the values, okay, I can't dispute that. But I'm talking about Hashem and Klal Yisrael and Taira. Those, those were, you know, meaningless to to, to Kissinger. Wait, for your first point, um, yeah, go ahead. Why shouldn't you read a book of Russia? Because it's good to note that. Like, fair enough. Fair enough. No, I, I maybe he wasn't reading the book. I agree. I'm, I'm interested in reading. I, I think knowledge is good. I, I think um, he's a celebrated Russia, and the Jews tend to celebrate him. And you know they do it with such. I don't, this is the last one of the subject. I don't want to. This is not a class on Kissinger right now. But but I, but I would say in the, in the myopia and the short sightedness and the shallowness of our people, we, we subscribe to the celebrity culture that says as long as you're famous somewhere, then it's important. And then we'll celebrate you, and you'll come to our banquet dinners. We'll, we'll like honor you and, and lie and say all and distort distort the pictures if you're some kind of uh, you know lover of Klal Yisrael. That's simply a sheker. That's just not accurate. And, and that, it's it's that that I that I that I was really reacting uh, to on Kissinger or back here. Um, I'm back to Nehemiah. It's a concerning question. Ask it, and I'll tell you if I feel like answering it. All right. When I was when I, when I was in college, they made me read um, Mein Kampf. I mean, oh, I think that could be a valuable experience reading Mein Kampf. Like I'm going to be. I'm going to be refer- like when, when we get into the when we get into the show. If we get into the show, uh, if, we, if we can get that far, um, I, I have a, my own very brief, in, inadequate, but still something of an analysis and something to say about Mein Kampf. And if you're knowledgeable about it, I, I think there are more important things that you could be learning. But I don't. I don't discredit the, the, the legitimacy. The only reason why we're reading it was to analyze and realize how ridiculous it sounds. Um, I wouldn't do that. I don't think that's useful. I mean, just so we can feel superior. I don't see the purpose of that that no, exercise. I, mean, I, I, I think it's valuable to understand what Hitler's, what 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 fueled him and and, and what made him tick, and that's useful. And it, there's there, there are a lot of valuable insights to be gleaned from learning it. Not just that no, he was an idiot and a fool. Like, I mean, like it's not a, <laughs> what he was going to do, and other countries didn't think he would do that, and he did anyway. So stop, stay tuned. Let's do this in the proper context. I think history makes a lot more sense when we talk about the things in their proper time period. Nehemia, you can't. You have to use discretion because you could also be learning endlessly everything. Uh, in, as the modern secular liberal education, you'd learn a little bit of everything and not much of anything. I'm not an advocate of that either. You should learn with a certain focus and agenda, otherwise you could be wasting your time, spinning your tail. Yes. Nehemiah then is appointed the new Pecha, and he's, he's sent back to Yehuda with his men. Uh, we, the, the king sends him with an entourage. They come in, though, he's a, he's a very modest fellow, not looking for any accolades, doesn't want to be the one at the banquet dinners, and they come in unannounced. 
And the first thing they do is they find a pile of old stones that clearly once were, were the city wall. And if you paid attention to the stones on our tour a couple days ago, you noticed that some of the older looking stones were actually higher up in the wall. And when you see that kind of phenomenon, you see it all over the old city and really in a lot of ancient cities, what that indicates is that some later period found some ancient stones and simply put them up, you know, it's cheaper that way than making new ones, in, in, on a higher level. And, that, that, and that's, so Nehemiah, hold the thought for just a minute, let me just complete this. So they, they find these old stones and, uh, and they galvanize the residents and they say, hey, let's rebuild this thing. And they do it. And it's one of those rousing uh, moments where people finally come in and, 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 and start to get their act together. Go ahead. And what was the name of this colony? Was it Israel at this time? I'm calling it Yehuda. It was called, it was referred to as Judea. I, I mean, I, Eretz Israel is the perennial name, so you can use that legitimately too. But I've been referring to Yehuda or ultimately Judea. As it was known, and it will be known, it will be known like that. It's certainly the focus is the area in and around Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh. And then we, we meet a few of the um, contemporary villains of this time. Their names are Sanbalat, Hachorani, Tovia Ha'amoni, uh, who come from various nations in and around, and they are allied with the Shomronim, with the Samaritans, the, the Kutim. And they come and they watch the Jews building and going through the, the, the arduous task of putting this wall back together again, and they start mocking them and throwing things at them. And the Jews are undaunted. They don't, they don't, they don't flinch. They continue their, 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 uh, their task. And um, ultimately, they start, the enemies start planning a surreptitious attack. They're going to get the Jews. The Jews, Baruch Hashem, anticipate the, uh, the attack. They foil it. They continue the building. And now they post guards around them. These are all stories you can read about in, say, for Ezra Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra is a big tzaddik, cares about people. Um, he notices that the wealthy are not supporting the poor adequately and rebukes them. He himself was well off. He had money from the king. Um, and he ensures, he personally gives a huge amount of his, portion, of his, of his personal wealth to the poor people. Uh, he gave tzedakah. He hosted 150 people at his own table every meal uh, to illustrate the point. Um, and especially the, the, those poor people who were doing the majority of the building of the walls anyway, uh, they, they were the ones deserving of most of the, the tzedakah. The enemies will come back and attempt again to uh, destroy the walls. At this point, they try to assassinate Nehemiah. They recognize a charismatic leader, uh, and they realize that they, they, they figure if they can get rid of him, then they can finally overcome the Jews. They also are Moser, which means they turn informant, and they go back to the, to the Persian king, Daryavish, and they tell him, hey, Nehemiah is trying to rebel against you. He's trying to foment a, a, a whole insurrection. And um, in the end, in the end, Hashem foils all the intrigues. Daryavish doesn't believe it. He knows Nehemiah would never do that, and he's right. Uh, and in the end, Ezra decides, because the Shomronim, the Samaritans, are really behind most of the, uh, the intrigues, he puts them in a certain kind of nidui. Do you know the term nidui? Nidui means a kind of excommunication, and in this case it meant Jews now, from this point in history, are forbidden from eating bread with the Shomronim. Do you realize what that means? 
in terms of significance. Right, like we like we don't eat uh, bishul akum. The Gemara Nevodah tells us so. We we socialize by eating. No eating, not easy to socialize. No hey, do you want to come over to our house for a little bit? Okay, come on over. Can't offer you anything to eat, nothing to drink either. How is it for you? You know, like uh, this is not the way people are. Everybody eats together, so we don't break bread with them. We're much less likely to have any social connections, and like you say, uh, we, it's going to prevent intermarriage. Um, we're going to see. Pay attention to this track this in the coming centuries. How gradually Chazal will chip away, and 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 or better way to look at it is they will take the Shomronim who were initially converts and make them increasingly pariahs, outcasts. In the Jewish world, Ezra makes the significant step of prohibiting uh, their bread. At one point, Zerubbabel goes back to Bavel. He dies there. His son, Zerubbabel, remember, is the Davidic line, so that's his significant. He dies there. His son, Meshulam, replaces him as the figurehead. He's called now, there's no Melech. Right? Melech is a retired term. Melech is also only relevant when we have sovereignty, which we don't. So there's no actual king. Um, he's called Nasi. Nasi, I heard word from Olpan from two minutes ago. Right, so a few minutes ago. Uh, and so he's called Nasi, which is kind of like the Queen of England today. She didn't do much. You know, she waves like this. I always oh, wondered about this one. It's a lot easier. Very good. Very safe face. I'm sure it's true. In any case, in any case, he's not. See, he's a figurehead. He's not clearly. Nobody recognizes him as a leader. But presumably, from his seed will come will come the ultimate Mashiach. Nehemiah still rules. The walls are complete. Uh, the city without a king only has the minimal kedusha, the eternal kedusha of David and Shlomo. There are different levels of kedusha. Eretz Israel we saw yesterday. Yesterday had the kedusha from Ezra in general. Yerushalayim in theory should have even a higher, a heightened kedusha, but it doesn't really without a king. It only has a the semblance of kedusha from David and Shlomo. Um, and now here comes. It was a scene that I mentioned on the tour, but we really have to do it more carefully inside now. Ezra and Nehemiah decide the moment's right to assemble the people for a Hanukkah Achomos. We've already had a Hanukkah Sabais. Now they're going to inaugurate the new walls of the city. It's a celebration. Uh, they bring what are called Lachme Toda, uh, the different kinds of korbanos. Um, there are Mishorarim in every corner. They, uh, the, the, the singers, the Levim, the Kohanim are blasting their chatzotros, their, their trumpets. Simcha can be heard from a great distance. They're trying to revive the spirits of the people. Uh, Yitz, Yitz, Yitzi was here. Yitzi was here. Mm -hmm. Got that. So they're trying as best they can to pick up this kind of downtrodden people. Um, the day, that day, they reinstate the Avoda fully. If you remember this, we'd started bringing some korbanos, like the Korban Tami. Now all korbanos are brought. Like it's really a full-fledged base of Mikdash. The four remaining, the four returning Mishmaros that I mentioned before, remember Ezra came back at 4 at 24 return. So in reward, a reward for them, because they returned from Bavel, these four, were each subdivided into six groups, and they made up the new 24 rotations of the Kohanim. That's a, that's a certain privilege that they deserved. 
Yedaya, which was formerly the second, is now the first, since the Yoriv, who was previously the first, they, they were still in Bavel. That Rosh Hashanah, again, the nation gathers, they come to the Ezra's Noshim. Can you picture the model of the temple now? It's in your minds freshly, right? We just, we just stood there looking at the model. The Ezra's Noshim is the eastern square below the, 16, the 15 uh, Ma'alos, the stairs leading up to Shari Nicanor. So the, the, the nation now is assembled in and around the Ezra's Noshim. Remember, it's not just for women, it's just that women can be there. Uh, they're in the street before what's called the Water Gate. That was in the years before Nixon. That was the second connection uh, today. Uh, who knew that Nixon was going to come up all this much? Um, they put up in the area a special wooden tower for the occasion for Ezra to stand and read from the Torah. It's a whole procession, very formally done. He assembles six members, six of the men of the great assembly on one side. Six of them are assembled on the other side. Everyone, the nation present, assemble and are silent in awe. Try to, as, as, as best you can conjure it up with your mind's eye, try to picture the scene. Ezra, the Kohen, the Gadol, the Sofer, blesses Hashem. He uses Hashem's hidden name. Eyebrows raised at all? You should, be, you, should, you, should have a, you should have a kasha. You're not allowed to do that. So it was what's called the Horas Sha'ah. Sometimes the Gadol Hador has the uh, prerogative to use his discretion to know, and he knew, and he had, he had Ruch HaKodesh to know that this was okay to do on this, on this unusual day. He uses Hashem's great hidden name, and then he does something very unusual that you can't imagine in a million years in a place like Derek, for example. He opens the Sefer Torah and he proceeds to read from it for hours and hours and hours. There are men, women, and children all assembled. Everybody is quiet. You can hear, as, as they say, I guess a stone drop. Not a, not a sound. They're wrapped. They're fully focused. The, the psukim describe the words of the Torah penetrating into the hearts of all the people and moving them to tears. Why tears? Because they're listening to the lofty words of the Torah and the descriptions in the Mishnah Torah and in the book of Devarim of what can be if we behave ourselves in the, she- in the land where Kaddish Baruch Hu, uh, that Kaddish Baruch Hu gives us and conversely what it is if we stray from Hashem, the punishment, and their tears are bitter, bitter, sad tears over recognizing their own and Klal Yisrael's own fault, their own, their own part in the destruction and in all of the terrible things that have happened to Klal Yisrael, their negligence in mitzvahs. And it's Rosh Hashanah. And this is an image, you have no reason to have to remember this, uh, but in case somebody does, I got up on uh, Rosh Hashanah and I gave a drasha around the time of Musaf on Rosh Hashanah, and I mentioned this scene. It's one of those that like sticks with me. Rosh Hashanah with Ezra. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah stand up, and they see that the Jews are bereft, and they're crying, and they say, no, no, you're wrong. Today is a holy day, and even though it's Rosh Hashanah, it's Yom Adin, so it's a day of, of, uh, of a certain sobriety, but it's also a day of Simcha, and uh, that's our portion. We're back. Akadosh Baruch Hu loves us. He's giving us a new opportunity. He, they instruct the wealthy to send delicacies to the poor. Uh, that way everybody will have simcha. And here's the most famous pasuk and the most famous expression. I quoted it then a, a few weeks ago. And I'll say it now. Ki chedvas Hashem hi ma'uschem. 
You're sad for understandable reasons, but you have to rejoice because the chedva, the sublime, um, exultant feeling that you should feel, the chedva Hashem, that's your strength. And you have to ibdu Hashem simcha. You have to celebrate Hashem and live life in simcha, and you'll come out of all of your. Uh, you'll, you'll you'll come away. You'll be stronger. You'll make tshuva. They make a celebration, a great simcha for the seven days of Sukkot, great uh, elaborate descriptions in the Psukim. Then, this is all leading up to uh, a final uh, crescendo. On the 24th of the day of Tishrei, meaning it's the day after Yantif is over, all the holidays now have passed. I guess they're taking down the Sukkah. That's what most of us do on on such a day, the 24th of Tishrei. The nation now gathers, and now it's no longer holiday, and now they're bent over, and they're fasting, and they're bereft, they're wearing sackcloth, they've got dirt on their heads, they're sincerely remorseful, they separated now, anybody who still had a non-Jewish wife, they've now divorced her, they daven and they learn all day long. And it's on this day that the story, it appears to us in the Gemara in Yuma, and the Gemara in Sanhedrin, the Anshayk Nesses with the backing of all the nation, turn their tefillah to Kaddish Baruch Hu, and they daven accordingly. They say, Kaddish Baruch Hu, tell me if this starts to sound familiar. I just said this to you two days ago, those of you who were there. Kaddish Baruch Hu, we understand why you gave us the Yitzhahara for idolatry. This immense power for, uh, for serving idols uh, and this, this drive. We understand what it's here for. It's in order that we should struggle and overcome it, overcome the Yitzhahara and receive reward for doing so. The Anshayk Nesli continue. We don't want it, and we don't want its reward. It's kind of a strong words. How do you say such a thing? They're saying it L'Shem Shemayim. They're saying, listen, we can't. We've seen this now. We're not able, we're not at the level anymore, if we ever were, to overcome the Yitzhahara for idolatry and it, if, if it destroyed us and it destroyed your holy temple once, it certainly could do the same in the future. Please, Hashem, help us get rid of it. They fast three days. Hashem sends down his divine stamp, which by now you remember is what? What word? No, the divine stamp of Hashem. I always say like what, what for other people would be their email signatures. What's Hashem's signature as it were? Three-letter word. Three-letter word? Almost. Emes. Thanks, Aaron. Emes. The first and last letter of the Aleph Bess with the middle letter of the Aleph Bess. Emes. True. Hashem endorses their tefillah. He says, you're right, and you're sincere, and I grant you that. At that point, a lion cub, a fiery lion cub, emerges from the Kodesh Kedoshim. A hair falls off. It roars. Go look up the Yagadatah and all the Mepharshim on it. It's incredibly deep. It roars. Its roar is horrific. It reverberates to the whole 400 parsangs that, uh, are, that spread to the extent of Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Judea at the time. And uh, the Jews don't know what to do. They look for guidance to the Navi Zechariah, who's standing there, and he says, Oh, that lion cub? That's the manifestation for the Yitzhahara for idolatry. He instructs them what to do. He says, fill its mouth with lead so its roar can't be heard, and then store it in a lead tube and put it under Harabais, where ostensibly, and I think very reasonably, I think you can make the argument, it exists till today. 
But the Gemara tells us specifically they didn't destroy the Yetzer for Avodah They contained it and, 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 and literally buried it. Hid it underground. So does that mean... La because in, as I explained the other day, inherently the Yetzirah for idolatry is not a bad thing. What do you say, Arye? I was going to say, what, does that mean if you were to go under our body, find that lion and get it out, then you'd probably die. We would revert to having the Yetzirah. Let's say assume that it works that way. I don't know. I don't know the rules of such things. I've never done it before. Oh, good thing. But let's say we get it back. Yeah, good. You you listened the other day. Very good. Very good. The drive for idolatry so strong and as we're going to see in the future, remember Menashe HaMelech comes to Ravashi in a dream and he says, you don't realize what it was like. We have nothing like it. Imagine our own petty Yitzharas, whatever they may be, even if they're very, very strong, maybe we're even addicted to certain things, and multiply them by a thousand, you might have a shadow of what it was to once have this, power, this, this, this drive for idolatry. But at its core, what it, all it really was was an immense spirituality. And from this point on in the future, as we're about to see, everything's going to change. I called it the other day... We got a spiritual lobotomy. The day that we stuffed the uh, Yetzirah for idolatry underground, the Jewish people suddenly were further removed from Hashem because when we don't have the power and the drive to do bad, we simultaneously lose that power to do good. And we're going to see a number of phenomena, and I'm going to spell this out. I'm going to give you the headlines now, but I don't want to go into it. I'm going to see how it works. But before, I mentioned this, not all of you were there, but I mentioned this, in this real critical, I argue one of the most important turning points in all of history. Previously, we knew how to daven. Now Jews, without this, without this potent spirituality, open their mouths and nothing comes out. It's hard to daven. That's why the Anshik Nesses Gedola write their bestseller, the Siddur. They put the words, they formulated for the first time. And I'm going to elaborate what that means, because the Jews now need it. This, we find, is the last generation to experience, as Brock correctly says, prophecy. We were, remember, we're in a, a knowledge of Hashem, but uh, known to prophets and by commoners alike, the knowledge of Hashem was all around you. You are on an exalted level just by breathing, by being alive in the world. Now suddenly that's removed. I mean, you ever feel in our world, we're, in, we're living our spiritual lives through several laws of gauze, la- layers of gauze. We're vaguely aware of some deeper meaning, but this this profound alienation that's the plague of our generation and has been really for the last 2,500 years since this time is all part of this. We've been removed. We're, we're, we, we, again, our spirituality has been reduced, so it's a good and bad thing. Yeah. Two things. One, we're going to do good or better or worse to set that mind free. So, I, so, right, so that's where we're going. Exactly. And, and Barack was already intuiting that. Correct. And you are too in your question. Good and bad. Depends on whose hands it's in. If you combine that potency with Torah, with dikduk and mitzvahs, with careful performance of the mitzvahs, with um, with Salashon, with a, with a fine-tuned uh, attention to midos, then what you potentially have is again prophecy and other exalted states. So it's 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 a dangerous thing, but if we're worthy, it's actually a very lofty thing. I, I it's it's um, I have a hunch, theory you might even call it. Then a Kaddish Baruch Hu, if you follow modern history, and there's actually we'll get there too, um, there's really been no opportunity to dig under the Temple Mount. It's too much of a political powder keg. Nobody touches it. And I wonder, you know, maybe that's a, all a Kaddish Baruch Hu's doing, because we're not, I would, I would assert to you also, not yet quite worthy 
to have that potency restored to the world, what is our job then? We've got to work on ourselves to get to that level so that we can unearth this this and all the other treasures that are there so that we can we can bring it back and do, do, what, do what we're meant to do with it. Do you think if there wasn't people working? If there wasn't political issues, people were? I think that, I don't think politics is to blame for all of our woes. I think I think if we were on a higher level in Torah, mitzvot, and midos that, that we would. Well, not in our present scenario, but I no, think that if we were worthy, I think that Chris Baruch would make it possible no, for us to bring it back. Like, you're saying it's God. You're saying God is controlling because if if there wasn't God controlling this political situation, everything goes okay. Like I'm not sure. I, I try to. I said this to the Templeists the other day. I try as best I can to stay away from grand prophetic kind of prognostications, as if I know. I, I just I wonder. That's why I call it a hunch. If there's a correlation to the fact that we have no access there and very. Possibly those things exist there. And I put that thought together with the thought that it doesn't seem to me that we're really worthy. We're not, we're on a, we're not at a decent level enough. That's all I'm suggesting. And that maybe if we got to a better level, maybe we would be worthy of getting those things back. Um, I have more I want to finish today. Unless you don't mind me keeping you a little late, I'll take some questions. You don't mind a little bit if I keep you after a little bit? Because it'd be nice to, to complete a unit. Yeah, Arya. Um, so you're feasibly allowed to convert to, to, uh, to Islam. Could no, no, this is really off topic. Don't do this now. Don't do this now. I, I'll, I'll talk to you about this another time. Yeah, I mean, anything that's on topic. We can, we, I mean, you see this a really rich, fruitful kind of discussion. You can generate all kinds of questions, but don't, that'll really take us far afield. But, but, but why now was the seed unheated? Because they still had temple service. They still stayed our sacrifice. Because they said we still have our this potent and this this this, this, this immense drive towards idolatry. But all they needed to do was sacrifice uh, for anything they needed. They, they just had to put sacrifices. I know, they, but they, they had all kinds of other complexities. We see now they're marrying non-Jewish women. Uh, they're not holding on it, the it's level. Davening helps, but uh, this is what they felt. The, the leaders of the generation felt what they could, what, what they could uh, handle. Now, it doesn't end there. I didn't mention this the other day. It's another famous part of the story. They looked around. They said, well, what do you know? You know more Yitzhahara. Okay. Since they recognize it as an ace rutzon, Hashem sometimes has certain prime time that you can ask for certain things then, but you can't ask for another time. They figured, we'll, we'll try our luck. And they davened. Right. There's certain days. That's what. Right. There's certain times in the world that it's conducive to, and therefore we take advantage. And they did that here. They davened. They figured, why not try to get rid of the other Yetzir, the bittel of the other Yetzirah, and Akadosh Baruch Hu granted their will. But be careful. Just like this first Yetzirah, the second Yetzirah also innately is neither good nor bad. The Medrash says, with it, we can marry and have children and build buildings and have jobs and have kinasofrim, the base Medrash, all kinds of good things can come out of a little bit of Yitzhahara when channeled properly. When channeled poorly, of course, it leads a person to internet addictions and other kinds of bad things. But okay, you know, we're human beings. We have Bechir Chavshis. So they said, well, let's try to get rid of it. The Gemara says it this way. A sick man needed an egg to get better. And they scoured all over Eretz Yisrael, and they couldn't find an egg. What? Because when what happened was when Hashem took away the other Yitzhahara, um, everybody who was pregnant couldn't couldn't give birth. Nobody was cohabiting with their wives. Um, the chickens, even the animals, when they had 
eggs in them, they couldn't lay their eggs. As it were, the world reached a certain level of stasis. It, became, it, it stopped. They couldn't find an egg, and they realized uh, this is not going to work. And so they, <laughs> they dive in. I'm paraphrasing. It's not quite like this. You can look at the original version in the, in the Gemara, but in my paraphrased version, they turn back to Kodesh Baruch Hu and they say, um, could you um, maybe give us back the good parts of the Sahara and uh, leave all the gunky stuff, like, you know, away? And the answer implied is that, no, no, it doesn't work that way. It's a package deal. You get the good and the bad, bad together. And you have to know how to channel it. So Hashem restores the Sahara. That's why you still have one. So do I. And uh, he does give them a party gift, a little party favor. He takes away, Kamar says this, the drive for incest. It used to be that people had a very powerful drive for incest. There's still incest in the world, but it's not accompanied usually with a drive. Most of it happens in the world, according to the studies at least, because the sister was just there in the room, not because the brother felt immense uh, uh, lust for her. Um, Rav Tzadok Cohen is the source of a lot of my analysis here. He's a great Hasidic Rav from the 19th century. Uh, and he points, all these connect, points to all these connections. He says, after Malachi and, and Zachari and Haggai, Malachi is identified, I said Zachari the other day, Malachi is really identified as the last Navi. Nevuah is no longer possible. That's the end of prophecy in the world. Therefore, nobody could ever say, Ko Amar Hashem again. Thus says Hashem, that's not possible. Nobody knows what Hashem says. Um, it's true that emissaries like Eliyahu Navi, who never died, will reappear so you have like a, let's say, a semblance of nevuah, but it's not the real thing. It's not, it's not the same nevuah. As we said before, no longer will there be nisim gluim, revealed miracles. Uh, no more spontaneous, intense tzfila. That's why we need our sidur. We need the formal prayer and the brachos and everything. They have to be set down because we didn't know how to, we couldn't come to it on our own. Um, and when the age of Nevoah comes abruptly to an end, so too, and this is really going to pick up on Sunday, a brand new age of opportunity is born, and it's an age that's considered, and Chazal talk about this, as the age of Nevoah ends, what is born? Age of the rabbis. The age of the rabbis was called the age of Chochmah. Where Chochmah, in the hands of any individual, that's something that's accessible, equal opportunity. Anybody can reach out and grab the Keser Torah, the crown of Torah, Mishnah Perkyabos tells us, Hem Amrushlosh Dvarim, they said three things. Uh, they were the first ever. What does it mean? They, were, they said three things. They said three things because when the Mishnah says this, and this is not appreciated so much in Perkyabos, in the first chapter, what does it mean they said three things? They're the first generation ever to be Mahadesh in Tyra. Prior to that, it was only for Chiddush, you don't have to innovate. The Torah was given to you. Okay, it did evolve depending on the changing circumstances, the times and places. You always had to know, know how to reapply old Torah principles. That's true. But all you had to do for that was to consult your local Navi, and he guided you in literally the word of Hashem. Now, we don't have prophets anymore. You need Chachamim, and with Chachamim comes the possibility for innovation. L'Shem Shemaim, in an acceptable way. So this idea of Hem Amrushlosh Advarim, they said three things, they're the first people ever to be Mahadish in Torah. Chiddush previously was unnecessary, and now it defines our world. And uh, we too, today, my Rebbe always used to say this. In fact, the one who said it was uh, named Rav Mordechai Willi, who you're zoking to hear from in about 15 minutes. So I'm quoting him right now. And he was always very um, keen. He always encouraged us, 
even though sometimes you get dis disillusioned sometimes in learning, who am I after all? What do I have to add to the discussion that's been going on with millions of great minds? What, what can I possibly add to Makos, Dalet, Amur Aleph that, could, that, could, that somebody else somewhere hasn't, hasn't already said? And he said, no, no. You're a unique person born in your own time with your own uh, mind and set of circumstances. You could bring a whole new insight into Torah that's never been known before. Each of us has something to contribute. That's this new age, and we're going to elaborate on it. Uh, Sunday is also a really important uh, time. We're going to talk about the immense impact of this, this august body called the Anshakness Gedola that they had in the world and how arguably they set the standards for a lot of what we think of as Judaism and the broad sense of the word, how the system of Torah works in our world. You're going to see all of all our innovations. You're going to recognize things that have come into existence that never preexisted and, and really become normative for our lives till today. Have a wonderful Shabbos.